Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. We renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles from our Declaration of Independence, founding fathers and other great patriots who made those principles come to life, the key documents and speeches which embody those principles, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. Patriot Lessons is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org, where you can find superb resources, including founding documents, prior podcast episodes, a video tour of my very own Oakland County, Michigan courthouse, and other fabulous items to learn from and share. I am Judge Michael Warren and the author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two tremendous Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skenechny, who is the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett, IT sales guru and master home renovator. In light of the upcoming presidential election, in this special episode, we will be reviewing the Electoral College, its origins, development, and history. Although it is tremendously important to the American constitutional order, most of us are only vaguely familiar with this funky, uniquely American system. We are going to fix that. When you are done with this episode, you will possess a more comprehensive understanding of this unique constitutional process than any of your friends and family. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, we will return in just a moment for a thorough explanation of the Electoral College. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. To really understand the presidential election process we have in effect today, we need to go back to the Constitutional Convention. A fair warning here, this first section about the Constitutional Convention is not going to be our normal, exciting, and entertaining historical narration. Instead, it's going to sound a bit more like a play or a historical sketch with some explanatory narration. It is intended to put you back to 1787 when the Constitutional Convention was meeting. Much of it is based on James Madison's notes about the Constitutional Convention. At times, I have slightly tweaked his language. In particular, I've made the past tense into the present tense and made the third person perspective into the first person perspective. For example, the words he believed were modified to I believe. This is to bring you better into our historical setting. Don't worry, nothing substantive is changed. Also, I attempt to keep the subject matters together, so we make no pretense that this is in any sense in strict chronological order, but it is pretty close. Now, forget everything you know about the presidency. Think of our new nation in 1787, with no president, in fact, no executive branch. We have a clean slate on which to create the executive branch. You are a delegate at the Constitutional Convention. Your thinking has been formed by English traditions and sharpened by the revolution and post-revolutionary period. You're open to new ideas with the highest concern of preserving liberty, but needing a functioning government at the national level. Join us on our magic mystery tour. Okay, we had to get the Beatles in immediately for Mike Gerard's sake. We are in Philadelphia in May 1787. On May 15th, 
the most famous man in our new country arrives, George Washington. He is going to preside over our Constitutional Convention that has been called for by our Congress. We were chosen a few weeks ago by our state legislature, and we have had a slow, arduous journey by horse over dirt paths, some dignified by the word roads, to arrive at the metropolitan city of Philadelphia. Over the next few weeks, our fellow delegates trickle in. It is hot, humid, muggy, and it's only going to get worse. The city is the largest in the nation. A bustling 43,000 residents live in the city and is chock full of rooming houses, inns, taverns, and stables. With its museums, theaters, cobblestone roads, a public library, houses of worship, and street lamps, Philadelphia has the feel of a major cosmopolitan European city. The delegates from across the country arrive with the most serious of business at hand, the Articles of Confederation, which provide the framework for the national government, is weak and failing. Although the Articles were ratified just a few years ago, the governing principles of the Articles have governed the Continental Congress since 1776. Each state basically retains its sovereignty, and the United States is much more akin to a confederation of independent nations than a unified national government. At the national level, there is only one branch of government, the Congress. There is no real executive or judicial branch. The Congress has very limited power, and it is basically paralyzed. Mobs have closed down courthouses. Armed rebels have challenged law and order. We have little standing in foreign affairs. Our states are engaged in trade wars. We have won the war, but are at grave risk of losing the peace. The gains of the revolution are at risk of slipping through our fingers. We convene at the Pennsylvania State House on May 25, 1787. The gathering is impressive. 55 of the best minds of America are here representing 12 states. Rhode Island, as usual, takes its own path and fails to appear. Each state sends between two and eight members, but each state only has one vote. True, we are missing John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, both on assignment overseas, and Patrick Henry has refused to attend, but otherwise, most of our leading lights are right here. Virginia, the leading state in population, wealth, and leadership, takes the initiative. In just two days, the Virginia delegation, through Virginia Governor Edmund Jennings Randolph, lays out a plan for a new national government. True, we are here only to suggest amendments to the Articles of Confederation, but the Articles be damned. Time for a new governing document, a constitution that changes most everything. These Randolph resolutions are also named the Virginia Plan. Although presented by Governor Randolph, the fingerprints of James Madison, the short, weak-voiced but brilliant delegate, are all over it. The Virginia Plan elevates the importance of the separation of powers, and divides the government into three distinct independent branches, a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. We all agree we should have three branches. Montesquieu and others have taught us that three independent branches is vital to freedom, and the articles are dangerously flawed. We engage in a vigorous debate about whether the executive should be composed of one or more persons, perhaps even a council, and the length of the term of office, and whether the executive or officer should be eligible for re-election. At first, we can't even agree on the name of the executive officer or council. Suffice it to say that we eventually agree that the executive should be vested in a single person, the president, such a novelty, and that this new president should serve a four-year term, and the president should be eligible for re-election, without any term limits. The powers vested in the president are strong. He will be the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. 
He will have the authority to nominate and appoint Supreme Court justices, ambassadors, diplomats, and the heads of executive departments. He will have the authority to direct the militia, and he will be able to check the Congress with a veto of legislation. The president will loom large. We can breathe a bit easier because we all know that George Washington will be our first president. But we also know we are creating a constitution for the future. We have to look past Washington, a prospect we all dread, but no must happen. Georgia delegate Abraham Baldwin expresses the convention sentiment when he writes to a friend. As to a president, it appeared to be the opinion of convention that he should be a character respectable by the nations as well as by the federal empire. To this end, that as much power should be given him as could be consistently with guarding against all possibility of his ascending in a tract of years or ages to despotism and absolute monarchy, of which all were cautious. Nor did it appear that any members in convention had the least idea of insidiously laying the foundation of a future monarchy like the European or Asiatic monarchies, either ancient or modern but were unanimously guarded and firm against everything of this ultimate tendency. Accordingly, they meant to give considerable weight as supreme executive, but fixed him dependent on the states at large and at all times impeachable. To achieve this end, how the president is to be chosen is key. But here, we are at a loss. Before the revolution, the chief executive was our king. But we now know that is folly. Tom Paine proved that, as did the many grievances listed in our Declaration of Independence. No, no hereditary king here. For the most part, before the revolution, our governors were appointed by the king. Now they are selected by a variety of means, none of which necessarily seem appropriate for a national head of state. What can we do? Now we must tip our hats to our fellow delegates. They are a creative bunch, if nothing else, and the Virginia plan recommends that Congress elect the president. On June 15th, New Jersey Delegate William Patterson offers a competing plan to Virginia. New Jersey is a small state, and its delegation is concerned that under the Virginia plan, those in the smaller states will be swamped and dominated by the larger states. This plan is originally dubbed the Patterson Resolutions, but now is most commonly referred to as the New Jersey Plan. This plan also has an executive elected by the Congress. As we begin to painstakingly consider the powers of the presidency and the need for independence between the branches, how to select the president is becoming extremely controversial. The delegates begin to generate counterproposals. A radical proposal is offered that the people in a nationwide election should elect the president. Now, the reality that was, except for some ancient Greek city-states, No nation of any size or consequence had ever elected its leadership in a nationwide election by the people. In reality, neither did the Greeks. Remember, they were a direct democracy. Everyone could vote on everything. There was no real single head of the country, and they had no concept of separation of powers. Some in the future might say, well, obviously the delegates of the Constitutional Convention were a misguided elitist who should embrace this idea. Well, they are completely forgetting that in the whole range of thousands of years of human history, no society had, number one, created a government with a true separation of powers, and number two, created a single executive officer who was elected by the people. The American Revolution was about much more than simple independence. We are rearing the fabrics of government itself. 
That it might fall short of some people's expectations is indicative of blindness to historical circumstances and the amazing accomplishments achieved. Still, that does not stop some of our more visionary founding fathers. Pennsylvania delegate James Wilson, who is very influential, perhaps a second to James Madison, explains at the convention that he favors a national popular vote for the president. On the convention floor on June 1st, so this is before the New Jersey plan was offered, Wilson says, In theory, I am for election by the people. Our experiences, particularly in New York and Massachusetts, showed that an election of the magistrates by the people at large was both convenient and successful. And the objects to choose in such cases must be persons whose merits have general notoriety. I wish to derive not only both branches of the legislature from the people without the intervention of the state legislatures, but also the executive branch in order to make them as independent as possible of each other as well as of the states. Wilson points out three reasons to support the popular vote. One, it is convenient and workable. Two, the power of the president should flow from the people. In other words, if the president is to represent all the people of the nation, then the people should directly vote for and delegate the authority to him. And three, this method ensures independence from the legislature. Virginia Delegate George Mason responds that he likes the idea, but doubts that it will be logistically possible. What does he mean? Well, an election across 13 states is most difficult. Maybe in the future, we may have technologies we cannot fathom here in 1787. In 1787, there is no mass communication, no paved roads stretching across the nation, and travel is as fast as a horse or a sailing ship. People in Georgia barely know where Massachusetts is. How will everyone in the country all vote for the president at the same time? Many of the people will not know the reputations and qualifications of the candidates being so far flung across the country. I suspect that even in the future, perhaps even as far as 1876, there may be controversy surrounding who really wins a national election requiring perhaps the creation of a 15-member committee. Or maybe even in the year 2000, there still may be considerable controversies about elections, such as hanging chads and what votes should count, which can only be resolved by the Supreme Court. And perhaps even 20 years after that, there may be controversies surrounding absentee voting. This idea of a national election seems fanciful thinking, chock full of insuperable logistical issues in 1787. Still, influential Pennsylvania delegate Governor Morris he is not a governor, he's just got a really cool name, Governor, strongly supports the idea as well. He adds another reason in favor when he speaks on July 17th. If the people should elect, they will never fail to prefer some man of distinguished character or services, some man, so to speak, of continental reputation. So Morris flips back the argument about practicality. He argues that because people live so far away and in disparate and different locations, only people with a national reputation will ever win the presidency, ensuring that they are high-quality candidates and of the highest character. As I ponder this prospect, I suspect there is a great truth in this prognostication. I strongly suspect that our first four presidents will be Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison. These are truly continental figures of enormous renown and qualifications. Perhaps we will be so blessed. Nevertheless, Morris's argument does not slip by unchallenged. On July 17th, Connecticut Delegate Roger Sherman claims 
that the people will never be sufficiently informed of characters and besides will never give a majority of votes to any one man. They will generally vote for some man in their own state and the largest state will have the best chance for appointment. Indeed, Delegate Charles Pickney of South Carolina expresses near exasperation when he exclaims that he did not expect to have to hear support yet again for a popular election, since it is able to the most obvious and striking objections, they will be led by a few active and designing men. The most populous states, by combining in favor of the same individual, will be able to carry their points. Governor Morris immediately responds. It is said that in case of an election by the people, that the populous states will combine and elect whom they please. Ah, just the reverse. The people of such states cannot combine. If there be any combination, it must be among their representatives in the legislature. It is said that the people will be led by a few designing men. This might happen in a small district, but it can never happen throughout the continent. With the election of a governor in New York, it is sometimes the case, in particular spots, that the activity and intrigues of little partisans are successful, but the general voice of the state is never influenced by such artifices. It is said that the multitude will be uninformed. It is true that they would be uninformed of what passed in the legislative conclave if the election were to be made there, but they will not be uninformed of those great and illustrious characters which have merited their esteem and confidence. If the executive be chosen by the national legislature, he will not be independent of it, and if not independent, usurpations and tyranny on the part of the legislature will be the consequence. This was the case in England in the last century. It has been the case in Holland, where their senates have engrossed all power. It has been the case everywhere. I am surprised that an election by the people at large should ever have been likened to the Polish election of the first magistrate. An election by the legislature will bear a real likeness to the election by the Diet of Poland. The great must be the electors in both cases, and the corruption and cabal, which are known to characterize the one, would soon find their way into the other. Appointments made by numerous bodies are always worse than those made by single responsible individuals or by the people at large. Virginia Delegate George Mason clearly comes down against a popular election, explaining that not only will it be impracticable, but it would be as unnatural to refer the choice of a proper character for chief magistrate to the people as it would be to refer the trial of colors to a blind man. The extent of the country renders it impossible that the people can have the requisite capacity to judge of the respective pretensions of the candidates. Earlier in the convention, Massachusetts Delegate Eldridge Jerry explains that although he likes the principle of Wilson's suggestion, he cannot embrace it. He reflects that, I am not clear that the people ought to act directly, even in the choice of electors, being too little informed of personal characters in large districts and liable to deceptions. Wilson, digging in deep, counters that, Without the confidence of the people, no government, least of all a Republican government, can long endure. Sherman replies, The less the people have to do with the government, the better. In the end, a direct election is overwhelmingly defeated, Nine states against versus one state for. Having beaten back the attempt to move toward a national popular election, 
the delegates returned to the idea of the Congress electing the president. Remember, this was proposed in both the Virginia and New Jersey plans. Sherman explains that because of the size and difficulties of communicating across the nation, the legislature, which had representatives from across the land, would be best able to select the president. He posits that the sense of the nation would be better expressed by the legislature than by the people at large. Delegate Charles Pickney adds, The national legislature, being most immediately interested in the laws made by themselves, will be most attentive to the choice of a fit man to carry them properly into execution. Delegate Sherman bolsters that argument by claiming that the president should be absolutely dependent on the Congress, as it is the will of the Congress which is to be executed. An executive independent from the Supreme Legislature is the very essence of tyranny, if there is such a thing. Those that support a popular election go on the offensive against this idea. Governor Morris eloquently explains their position, that the president... He will be the mere creature of the legislature if appointed and impeachable by that body. He ought to be elected by the people at large, by freeholders of the country. That difficulties attend this mode I admit, but they have been overcome in New York and in Connecticut and would, I believe, be so found in the case of an executive of the United States. If the people should elect, they will never fail to prefer some man of distinguished character or services, some man, if he might so to speak, of continental reputation. If the legislature elect, it will be the work of intrigue, of cabal, and of faction. It will be like the election of a pope by a conclave of cardinals. Real merit will rarely be the title to the appointment. I move to strike out national legislature and insert citizens of the United States. Likewise, the idea that the legislature will be seeking a person most fit to execute the laws seems to fly in the face of practical reality. James Wilson argues, The legislature might deserve confidence in some respects and distrust in others. In acts which were to affect them and their constituents precisely alike, confidence was due. In others, jealousy was warranted. In the appointments to great offices, where the legislature might feel many motives not common to the public, confidence was surely misplaced. This branch of business, it was notorious, was the most corruptly managed of any that had been committed to legislative bodies. In fact, Sherman's major premise, that the president should be absolutely dependent on the Congress, was exactly why this idea of appointment by the Congress should be avoided. It strikes at the heart of separation of powers. Massachusetts Delegate Eldridge Jerry vehemently expresses the sentiment. There would be constant intrigue kept up for the appointment. The legislature and the candidates would bargain and play into one another's hands. Votes would be given by the former under promises or expectations from the latter of recompensing them by series to members of the legislature or their friends. It would lessen that independence of the executive which ought to prevail, would give birth to intrigue and corruption between the executive and legislature previous to the election, and in partiality in the executive afterwards to friends who promoted him. Wilson piles on. 
A particular objection against an absolute election by the legislature is that the executive in that case would be too dependent to stand as the mediator between the intrigues and sinister views of the representatives and the general liabilities and interests of the people. There is a clique of delegates, including John Rutledge of South Carolina, who argued that an appointment by the Congress would be fine if the president was not eligible for re-election. Once he is appointed, he would be independent of pressure by the Congress because he would have no incentive to please them at their will. However, this raises another set of concerns. Many argue that what will keep a president in check is the hope that he will be elected again. Take away that accountability and incentive and we might have an unaccountable runaway tyrant. Others argue if someone is not re-eligible, he should have a very lengthy term in the neighborhood of seven years, which most delegates think is just way too long. Others, like Eldridge Jerry, agree for the need of the independence from Congress, but want the finest people in the nation to be eligible to serve for more than a single term. Nevertheless, on July 24th, the motion to have the president elected by Congress passes seven to four. But this is not the end of the matter. As a stopgap measure, James Wilson suggests a small committee of congressmen should be vested with this authority, but then they should all retire after they select the president. This goes exactly nowhere. Governor Morris comes back on the attack, this time elaborating in great detail the dangerous road a president depended upon the approval the Congress would lead. Of all the possible modes of appointment, that by legislature is the worst. If the legislature is to appoint and to impeach or to influence the impeachment, the executive will be the mere creature of it. I was opposed to the impeachment, but now am convinced that impeachment must be provided for if the appointment is to be of any duration. No man would say that an executive known to be in the pay of an enemy should not be removed in some way or another. I have been charged heretofore by Mr. Mason with inconsistency in pleading for confidence of the legislature on some occasion and urging a distrust on others. The charge was not well founded. The legislature is worth of unbounded confidence in some respects and able to be distrusted in others. When their interest coincides precisely with that of their constituents, as happens in many of their acts, no abuse of trust is to be apprehended. When a strong personal interest happens to be opposed to the endear's interest, the legislature cannot be too much distrusted. In all public bodies there are two parties. The executive will necessarily be more connected with one than the other. There will be a personal interest, therefore, in one of the parties to oppose, as well as in the other to support him. Much has been said of the intrigues that will be practiced by the executive to get into office. Nothing has been said on the other side of the intrigues to get him out of office. Some leader of a party will always covet his seat, will perplex his administrations, will cabal with the legislature till he succeeds in supplanting him. This was the way in which the King of England was got out, and I mean the real king, the minister. This was the way in which Pitt, Lord Chatham, forced himself into place. Fox was pushing for the matter still further. If he had carried his Indica bill, which was very near doing, he would have made the minister the king in form almost as well as in substance. Our president will be the British minister. Yet we are about to make him appointable by the legislature. 
Morris then shoots down the idea that the president should be ineligible for re-election, as this could have the unattended consequence of forming the foundation of something much more terrible. Something has been said of the danger of monarchy. If a good government should not now be formed, if a good organization of the executive should not be provided, I doubt whether we should not have something worse than a limited monarchy. In order to get rid of the dependence of the executive on the legislature, the expedient of making him ineligible a second time has been devised. This is as much to say that we should give him the benefit of experience and then deprive ourselves the use of it. But make him ineligible a second time and prolong his duration to even fifteen years? Will he by any wonderful interposition of providence at that time cease to be a man? No, he will be unwilling to quit his exaltation. The road to his object through the Constitution will be shut. He will be in possession of the sword. A civil war will ensue, and the commander of the victorious army on whichever side will be the despot of America. This consideration renders me particularly anxious that the executive should be properly constituted. Morris concludes by openly expressing the vexatious nature of the question before them. The vice here would not, as in some other parts of the system, be curable. It is the most difficult of all, rightly, to balance the executive. Make him too weak, the legislature will simply usurp his power. Make him too strong, he will usurp on the legislature. I prefer a short period, a re-eligibility, but a different mode of election. A long period would prevent an adoption of the plan. It ought to do so. I would myself be afraid to trust it. I am not prepared to decide on Mr. Wilson's mode of election just hinted by him, but it deserves consideration. I suppose it would be better that chance should decide rather than intrigue. Likely sensing that Morris was having a serious impact on the convention, the next day Madison drives a stake into the heart of the proposal of the election of the president by the Congress, because it is liable to insufferable objections. Besides the general influence of the mode on the independence of the executive in the first place, the election of the chief magistrate would agitate and divide the legislature so much that the public interest would materially suffer by it. Public bodies are always apt to be thrown into contentions, but into more violent ones by such occasions than by any others. In the second place, the candidate would intrigue with the legislature, would derive his appointment from the predominant faction and be apt to render his administration subservient to its views. In the third place, the ministers of foreign powers would have and would make use of the opportunity to mix their intrigues and influence with the election. Limited as the powers of the executive are, it will be an object of great moment with the great rival powers of Europe who have American possessions, to have at the head of our government a man attached to their respective politics and interest. No pains, nor perhaps expense, will be spared to gain from the legislature an appointment favorable to their wishes. Germany and Poland are witnesses of this danger. In the former, the election of the head of the empire, till it became in a manner hereditary, interested all Europe, and was much influenced by foreign interference. In the latter, 
Although the elective magistrate has very little real power, his election has at all times produced the most eager interference of foreign princes and has, in fact, at length slid entirely into foreign hands. The tide is turned. Election by the Congress is defeated 7-4. to four. Previously, Eldridge Jerry moves that the governors of each state elect the president, with each governor having as many votes as the states would have in the Senate. He argues that it will lead to the selection of the finest men. Virginia Delegate Madison objects. An appointment by the state's executive was liable, among other objections, to this insuperable one, that being standing bodies, they could and would be courted and intrigued with the candidates by their partisans and by the ministers of foreign powers. This proposal is soundly defeated nine to nothing. But Jerry was tenacious. A short time later, he comes back. He modifies the proposal to include that it would be governors with the advice of their councils, or if there are no councils, by electors chosen by the legislatures. The delegates just ignore this proposal altogether. In passing, some delegates suggest allowing the state legislatures to appoint the president. But Madison comes down hard against this idea. The legislatures of the states had betrayed a strong propensity to a variety of pernicious measures. One object of the national executive, so far as it would have a negative on the laws, was to control the national legislature, so far as it might be infected with a similar propensity. Refer the appointment of the national executive to the state legislatures, and this controlling purpose may be defeated. The legislature can and will act with some kind of regular plan and will promote the appointment of a man who will not oppose himself to a favorite object. Should a majority of the legislatures at the time of the election have the same object or different objects of the same kind, the national executive would be rendered subservient to them. In other words, Madison explains that part of the point of a president is to allow him to veto unwise or unconstitutional state legislation. At that time, the idea that the federal government could veto state legislation was under serious consideration. And if the state legislators appointed the president, he would never have the inclination to veto those laws. Another proposal. Buys the dust. Another one buys the dust. The convention, Madison points out, is running out of options. Being creative and intellectually honest, he voices yet another option, which is never even articulated by another delegate, to have the president selected by the United States Supreme Court. But Madison quickly brushes that aside because that is out of the question. He likewise dismisses any idea that the state judiciaries would appoint the president. The convention has been going on for months, yet we are stumped. Or are we? After the New Jersey plan has been presented, New York Delegate Alexander Hamilton suggests a plan, among other things, by which the president would be chosen by electors chosen by the people. But, as Connecticut Delegate William Samuel Johnson expressed it, The gentleman from New York has been praised by everybody. He has been supported by none. Hamilton's idea fell like a lead balloon but at least we have breached the idea of electors. Another interesting idea percolates. North Carolina delegate Hugh Williamson comes up with an innovative idea, giving each voter 
three votes. I am sensible that strong objections may lay against an election of the executive by the legislature and that it opened a door for foreign influence. The principal objection against an election by the people seemed to be the disadvantage under which it would police the smallest states. I suggest a cure for this difficulty, that each man should vote for three candidates. One of them would be probably of his own state, the other two from some other states, and is probably of a small as a large one. Bizarre? Yes. Genius? Maybe. Governor Morris spies its merits and proposes a counter that each voter could cast two votes, and one could not be from his home state. Looking around, Madison muses out loud and thinks something valuable might be made of the suggestion with the proposed amendment of it. The second best man in this case would probably be the first in fact. The only objection which occurred was that each citizen, after having given his vote for his favorite fellow citizen, would throw away his second on some obscure citizen of another state in order to ensure the object of his first choice. But it can hardly be supposed that the citizens of many states would be so sanguine of having their favorite elected as not to give their second vote with sincerity to the next object of their choice. But Delegate Jerry will have none of it. A popular election in this case of more than one vote is radically vicious. The ignorance of the people would put it in the power of some one set of men dispersed through the Union and acting in concert to delude them into any appointment. Such a society of men existed in the order of the Cincinnati. They are respectable, united, and influential. They will, in fact, elect the chief magistrate in every instance if the election be referred to the people. His respect for the characters composing the society could not blind him to the danger and impropriety of throwing such a power into their hands. The subtext here is clear. George Washington, the indispensable man, the leader who kept our country together in its darkest hour, who was at this very moment the president of the Constitutional Convention, and whose mere presence is absolutely necessary for this convention to have a whisper of a chance is the inspiration for the Society of the Cincinnati, named after a glorified Roman general who Washington emulated. And here is Delegate Jerry, fearlessly refusing to allow a presidential election process that will empower the society that idolizes Washington. Now, that is gutsy. Still groping somewhat in the dark, Pennsylvania Delegate John Dickinson takes the floor with a very innovative proposal. In essence, he suggests that each state nominate one person and the president will be chosen by either the Congress or electors that Congress appoints. I have long leaned towards an election by the people, which I regard as the best and purest source. Objections, I am aware, lie against this mode, but not so great, I think, as against the other modes. The greatest difficulty in the opinion of the House seems to arise from the partiality of the states to their respective citizens. But might not this very partiality be turned to a useful purpose? Let the people of each state choose its best citizen. The people will know the most eminent characters of their own states, and the people of different states will feel an emulation in selecting those of whom they will have the greatest reason to be proud. Out of the thirteen names thus selected, an executive magistrate may be chosen either by the national legislature or by the electors appointed by it. 
Here is yet another delegate inclined to support a popular election, but he feels it is not wise to go the whole way. This scheme will start with 13 nominees. It will increase as we add states, which is inevitable considering our wanderlust for the West and even northern and southern regions of this grand continent. This proposal is yet another that goes exactly nowhere. And another one gone, and another one gone, another one bites the dust, hey, hey, gonna get to do, another one bites the dust. James Wilson suggests a distant cousin of Dickinson's proposal, that the nation be divided into four districts, with several states in each district. Each district will have a popular election selecting electors. Those electors, in turn, would elect the president. Delegate Eldridge Jerry likes the principle of the plan, but cannot support it because he fears it would alarm and give a handle to the state partisans as tending to supersede altogether the state authorities. I think the community not yet ripe for stripping the states of their powers, even such as might not be requisite for local purposes. I am for waiting till the people should feel more the necessity of it. I prefer the taking suffrages of the states instead of electors, or letting the legislatures nominate and the electors appoint. I am not clear that the people ought to act directly, even in the choice of electors, being too little informed of personal characters in large districts and liable to deceptions. This elector idea is not foreign to the Constitutional Convention. Wilson's proposal is nearly identical to the method of choosing the Senate in Maryland, and electors choose the president and vice president of Pennsylvania, Wilson's home state. Moreover, indirect election of the chief executive prevails in eight states by which the legislature, or one branch of it, sometimes acting with an executive council, appoints the governor. Still, Wilson's elector's proposal by district also goes nowhere, going down in flames eight to two. But like a vampire once impaled, the idea of electors keeps springing back to life when another delegate grabs the stake and brandishes it before the convention. On July 17th, Delegate Luther Martin suggests that the president should be elected by electors who are appointed by the legislatures of the several states. Hmm, this seems to have serious vitality. But no, it is defeated 8-2. to two. Now what? Where will we turn? Two days later, Connecticut delegate Oliver Ellsworth moves that the president is to be chosen by electors appointed by the legislatures of the states in the following ration. To wit, one for each state not exceeding 200,000 inhabitants, two for each above that number not exceeding 300,000, and three for each state exceeding 300,000. Delegate Jerry jumps on board, but recommends that the electors be capped at 25 and list a specific proportion of the number of electors assigned to each state. Delegate Ellsworth is willing to take what he can. He moves that the question be divided. The first part is whether the national executive should be appointed by electors. And it passes, 6-3. to three. The election of the president is finally coalescing around electors. The second part of the question is whether the state legislatures will appoint the electors, and that garners even stronger support. 8-2. to two. The next day, July 21st, we return to the number of electors. After some discussion among Madison and others, the convention agrees that the number of electors for each state should be equal to the number of representatives in the House of Representatives. Delegate Williamson suggests that the electors be paid for their service out of the national treasury, and that addition is passed without any commentary. Oh my, we seem to be on the cusp of wrapping this up. Glorious! But no, 
is we have seen more than once in connection with this vexatious issue, the issues rise again. The opponents to the elector system try to plunge the stake back into the vampire. Massachusetts Delegate Caleb Strong remarks that the electors will add unnecessary complexity. Delegate Williamson joined Strong in thinking that the electors will likely be populated by third-rate or worse characters, since the first and second grade of men would be drawn to serve in the Congress. Madison, however, disagrees. He reviews how all the options of choosing the president except for two were unacceptable. Those two acceptable options were election by the people directly or an election by electors. He prefers direct election by the people, and the electors were by far the second best option. They eliminated the concerns of having the Congress picked directly. As the electors would be chosen for the occasion, they would meet at once and proceed immediately to an appointment. There would be very little opportunity for cabal or corruption. Although the convention is leaning toward the elector mode of election, it is still unfinished business. On August 31st, the Constitution is not yet complete, including the specific way of selecting the president. Roger Sherman moves that all such matters be referred to a new committee. The convention determines to delegate to a committee of 11, one from each attending state minus New York, to draft a proposal on all postponed matters, otherwise known as the Committee on Unfinished Parts, and dubbed the Committee of 11 by many. Because it is chaired by Jonathan Brearley of New Jersey, some call it the Brearley Committee. We anxiously await the committee's report. On September 4th, the Brearley Committee comes back proposing a system of electors, but it is materially different than what was proposed before. The electors would be chosen in each state in the manner as its legislature might direct. The electors were equal in number as representatives in the House of Representatives and the number of senators in the Senate, not just the House of Representatives like previously suggested. Each elector would have two votes and could cast only one for someone in his own state. It provides that if one candidate has obtained a majority, he wins the presidency outright. If there is a tie, the Senate will decide the matter between the two. If there is no majority and no tie, then the Senate will choose between the top five candidates. This election method is a clear compromise. The key to the compromise is that if no candidate receives a majority of votes from the electors, the Senate will decide the issue. I suspect that Max Ferrand, the future constitutional scholar, will sum up the importance of the Senate as a backstop. Quote, this was no pretense, a mere sop thrown out to the small states. It was expected that the electors would naturally vote for men from their own state, hence the provision that each elector should vote for two persons, one of whom should not be a resident of the state himself, and each elector was expected to vote independently according to his own best judgment. Under those circumstances, it was conceded that Washington would be chosen in the first election, but in subsequent elections, it was expected that the vote would be so scattered as not to tie a majority to any one person. This would throw the election into the Senate. In other words, and it was so explained again and again by such men as Madison, Sherman, King, and Governor Morris, under this system, the large states would nominate the candidates and the eventual election would be controlled by the small states. Now back to the convention floor. Some well-informed delegates believe that the Senate will decide the election almost all the time. George Mason, for example, suggests that the Senate will decide it 19 of 20 times. Some are thrilled that electors have come out of the Brearley Committee. Delegate Morris doesn't think the electors are the second best option. No, he thinks they are the very best idea. Indeed, he lists six reasons 
why it is a better choice than election by Congress or the people directly. He was a member of the Brearley Committee, and he expresses the committee's and his own personal beliefs. The first is the danger of intrigue and faction if the appointment should be made by the legislature. The next is the inconvenience of an ineligibility required by that mode in order to lessen its evils. The third is the difficulty of establishing a court of impeachments other than the Senate, which would not be so proper for the trial nor theater branch for the impeachment of the president if appointed by the legislature. In the fourth place, nobody appears to be satisfied with the appointment by the legislature. In the fifth place, many are anxious even for an immediate choice by the people. And finally, the sixth reason is the indispensable necessity of making the executive independent of the legislature, as the electors would vote at the same time throughout the United States and at so great a distance from each other, the great evil of cabal is avoided. It would be impossible also to corrupt them. A conclusive reason formatting the Senate instead of the Supreme Court, the judge of impeachments, was that the latter was to try the president after the trial of impeachment. Opponents such as Eldridge Jerry argue that the electors will not know enough about the candidates to make an informed decision, and that they will end up throwing the decision to the Senate, just like Mason had confessed. But senators will preside over any impeachment trials, an untenable position, since they will be responsible for the president's election, a huge conflict of interest. Supporters such as Georgia delegate Abraham Baldwin, also a member of the Brearley Committee, counter that over time, the nation will become more interconnected, making it much more likely that the electors will be well-informed of the candidates and much less likely that the election would be tossed into the Senate. Wilson, who up to this point had been an adamant supporter of popular elections, concedes that the general idea has tremendous merit because it will create an independent president and eliminate the cabal, intrigue, and corruption that will otherwise attend to the Congress making the decision. However, he thinks that if there is no majority, the decision should be left to the entire Congress, not just the Senate. Other delegates agree. One delegate even suggests that whoever gets the most votes should win, even if not a majority. A motion was made to remove the Senate as the default body if the Electoral College failed to garner a majority, but that motion fails in a vote of 10 to 1. Milson moves that the entire Congress, as opposed to just the Senate, decide. This is also defeated, 7 to 3. But of course, the subject is not closed. We go to bed, tired. The next day, September 6th, Madison explains the mode of the election should have a primary object to render an eventual resort to any part of the legislature improbable. That this is Madison's goal hardly solves the problem. Delegate Sherman again raises the idea of having the entire Congress decide the issue. Wilson then goes back into action and forcefully explains that the government was beginning to morph into an aristocracy ruled by the Senate. The Senate was already to possess a number of powers denied to the House of Representatives, and now the convention was on the verge of making the president their puppet. I have weighed carefully the report of the committee for remodeling the constitution of the executive and, on combining it with the other parts of the plan, I am obliged to consider the whole as having a dangerous tendency to aristocracy, as throwing a dangerous power into the hands of the Senate. They will have, in fact, the appointment of the president and, through his dependence on them, the virtual appointment to offices 
among others officers of the Judiciary Department. They are to make treaties and they are to try all impeachments. In allowing them thus to make the executive and judiciary appointments to be the court of impeachments and to make treaties which are the laws of the land, the legislative, executive and judiciary powers are all blended in one branch of government. The power of making treaties involves the case of subsidies and here, as an additional evil, foreign influence is to be dreaded. According to the plan as it now stands, the president will not be the man of the people as he ought to be, but the minion of the senate. He cannot even appoint a tidewater, a customs official who supervises the landing of goods without the senate. I think the Senate is too numerous a body for making appointments to office. The Senate will, moreover, in all probability, be in constant session. They will have high salaries, and with all the powers and the President in their interest, they will depress the other branch of the legislature and aggrandize themselves in proportion. Add to this all that the Senate sitting in conclave can by holding up to their respective states various and improbable candidates contrive so to scatter their votes as to bring the appointment of the president ultimately to themselves. Upon the whole, I think the new mode of appointing the president, with some amendments, is a highly valuable improvement, but I will never agree to purchase it at the price of ensuing parts of the report nor befriend a system which they make apart. Morris can't believe his ears. He counters that this idea is preposterous. The Senate has no power alone. Every power it has is bounded and checked by the other branches. It is not an aristocracy. The Senate has a voice in appointing the president out of all of the citizens of the United States. By this, they are limited to five candidates previously nominated to them with a probability of being barred altogether by the successful ballot of the electors. Here surely is no increase of power. They are now to appoint judges nominated to them by the president. Before, they had the appointment without any agent whatever of the president. Here again is surely no additional power. If they are to make treaties, as the plan now stands, the power is the same in the printed plan. If they are to try impeachments, the judges must have been triable by them before. Wherein, then, lie the dangerous tendency of the innovations to establish an aristocracy in the state? As to the appointment of officers, the weight of the sentiment in the House is opposed to the exercise of it by the President alone, though it is not the case with himself. If the Senate would act, as is suspected, in misleading states into a fallacious disposition of their votes for a president, they would, if the appointment were withdrawn wholly from them, make such representations in their several states where they have influence as would favor the object of their partiality. Delegate Williamson retorts in a laser-like fashion and clearly highlights the nub of the issue. The aristocratic complexion proceeds from the change in the mode of appointing the president, which makes him dependent on the Senate. Hamilton suggests that there be no default mechanism. Whoever receives the highest number of electoral votes should just win. And this proposal is met with thunderous silence. It is not even put to a vote. Roger Sherman ignores Hamilton. Instead, he suggests striking the Senate and replacing it with the House of Representatives, 
with each delegation having only one vote. George Mason supports this move. As lessening the aristocratic influence of the Senate. This amendment passes 10 to 1. At the end of the exhaustive and exhausting debate, the language approved by the Constitutional Convention, sent to Congress and then eventually to the states for ratification, was as follows. Article 2, Section 1. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold his office during the term of four years, and together with the vice president, chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. Each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors, equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, of whom one at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all the persons voted for and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States directed to the president of the Senate. The president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates, and the vote shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed, and if there shall be more than one who have such majority, and have an equal number of votes, then the House of Representatives shall immediately choose by ballot one of them for president. And if no person have a majority, then from the five highest on the list, the said House shall, in like manner, choose the president. But in choosing the president, the vote shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. In every case, after the choice of the president, the person having the greatest number of votes of the electors shall be the vice president. But if there shall remain two or more who have equal votes, the Senate shall choose from them by ballot the vice president. Now, we understand how we came to this complicated process in the first instance. But the people who had to decide whether or not to ratify the Constitution are not privy to the deliberations of the Constitutional Convention. The Convention is not followed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, by cable news, no tweets or Facebook posts about the convention. In fact, there is no social media or TV. There is no radio. There are not even newspaper reports. The Constitutional Convention is held in secret. Some delegates, like Madison, took notes, but those are not public either. When the Constitution is unveiled, it unleashes a torrent of discontent and opposition. James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay collaborate to write the Federalist Papers to explain the Constitution and advocate for its ratification. Interestingly, the mode of electing the president is hardly attacked. James Madison, in Federalist Number 39, explains the character of this unique constitutional procedure and how it was a true mixture of federal and national features. Here, federal would mean that authority is derived from the states, while national means the power is directly from the people. He explains, The executive power will be derived from a very compound source, the immediate election of the president is to be made by the states in their political characters. The votes allowed to them are in a compound ratio, which considers them partly as distinct and co-equal societies. Party 
as unequal members of the same society. The eventual election, again, is to be made by that branch of the legislature which consists of the national representatives, but in this particular act they are to be thrown into the form of individual delegations from so many distinct and co-equal bodies politic. From this aspect of the government it appears to be of a mixed character, presenting at least as many federal as national features. Hamilton continues the defense of the Electoral College in Federalist Number 48. The mode of appointment of the Chief Magistrate of the United States is almost the only part of the system of any consequence which has escaped without severe censure or which has received the slightest mark of approbation from its opponents. The most plausible of these, who has appeared in print, has even deigned to admit that the election of the President is pretty well guarded. I venture somewhat further and hesitate not to affirm that if the manner of it be not perfect, it is at least excellent. It unites in an eminent degree all the advantages, the union of which was to be desired. The assessment that there is little controversy over the selection mode of the president rings true. The Anti-Federalist, those opposing the adoption of the Constitution, focus on the lack of a Bill of Rights, the aristocratic nature of the Senate, the purported dangers of the tax and spending powers, along with unnecessary improper clause, and similar concerns. How the president is elected is very low on the agenda. Nevertheless, Hamilton highlights why this mode is appropriate. He notes that selecting a small number of electors enables them to calmly deliberate and become informed, and will naturally tend to have the selection of the best informed persons as electors. He elaborates that by creating an intermediate body between the states or Congress, they will be much less apt to convulse the community with any extraordinary or violent movements than the choice of one who was himself to be the final object of the public wishes. And as the electors, chosen in each state, are to assemble and vote in the state in which they are chosen, this detached and divided situation will expose them much less to heats and ferments which might be communicated from them to the people than if they were all to be convened at one time in one place. In other words, Hamilton believes that the country needs to mitigate against heats and passions in selecting the president and that by taking the decision out of the hands of the Congress and the people and placing it in an independent body of reasoned and illustrious statesmen, the most wise choice can be made. And by having each set of electors meet in their own respective states, it insulates them from such passions versus having everyone convening at the same time and place. Now, at this time, America is a very young country. Although we won our independence from the greatest empire in world history, America is surrounded by European powers on the continent. The founders are very concerned that foreign intrigue could corrupt the process of choosing the president. Hamilton explains how the electors are a perfect remedy for this, as well as corruption from within the Congress. They have not made the appointment of the president to depend on any pre-existing bodies of men who might be tampered with beforehand to prostitute their votes but they have referred it in the first instance to immediate act of the people of America, to be exerted in the choice of persons for the temporary and sole purpose of making the appointment. And they have excluded from eligibility to this trust all those who from their situation might be suspected of too great devotion to the president in office. No senator, 
representative, or other person holding a place of trust or profit under the United States can be of the number of electors. Thus, without corrupting the body of the people, the immediate agents in the election will at least enter upon the task free from any sinister bias. Their transient existence and their detached situation, already taken notice of, afford a satisfactory prospect of their continuing so, to the conclusion of it. The business of corruption, when it is to embrace so considerable a number of men, requires time as well as means. Nor would it be found easy suddenly to embark them, dispersed as they would be over thirteen states, in any combinations, founded upon motives, which though they could not properly be denominated corrupt, might yet be of a nature to mislead them from their duty. Hamilton also explains that having electors, or in the alternative, the House of Representatives make the decision, will ensure that only the best possible candidates will be elected. This process of election affords a moral certainty that the office of the president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. Talents for low intrigue and the little arts of popularity may alone suffice to elevate a man to the first honors in a single state, but it will require other talents and a different kind of merit to establish him in the esteem and confidence of the whole union, or of so consideration a portion of it, as would be necessary to make a successful candidate for the distinguished office of President of the United States. It will not be too strong to say that there will be a constant probability of seeing the station filled by characters of preeminence for ability and virtue. Did you catch that? Hamilton is so confident in this process that he calls it a moral certainty that the president will be a person of high character, ability, and virtue. Now, I wonder if all the presidents of the United States over time will live up to that expectation. In any event, Hamilton was hardly alone. During the ratification debate at the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, Delegate James Aradell makes a strikingly parallel argument. Thus, sir, two men will be in office at the same time. The president, who possesses in the highest degree the confidence of his country, and the vice president, who is thought to be the next person in the union most fit to perform this trust. Here, sir, every contingency is provided for. No faction or combination can bring about the election. It is probable that the choice will always fall upon a man of experienced abilities and fidelity. In all human probability, no better mode of elevation could have been devised. In addition to the fundamentals, there are several procedural safeguards and processes. No member of Congress or anyone having an office of trust or profit from the United States can be an elector, an obvious conflict of interest and one that would instigate cabals and intrigue. The election must be done by ballot, not by voice vote. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, who served the Supreme Court from 1811 to 1845 in his very influential work, a familiar exposition of the Constitution of the United States explains. The object of this provision is to secure the electors from all due influence and undue odium for their vote, as it was supposed that perfect secrecy could be maintained. In addition, substantively, although each elector can cast two votes, they have to be from different states. This was touched on previously in story straightforwardly explained. The object of this clause is to suppress local partialities and combinations. 
In other words, if the electors could always just vote for the home state candidates, geography and local preferences would tilt the whole system, especially towards the larger states. To prevent ballot tampering and fraud, the electors also need to certify the votes, and they need to be sealed. They are opened and counted in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives. Furthermore, it would take a majority of elector ballots to win outright, otherwise it will go to the House of Representatives. Whether Mason was correct that the convention really believed that 19 of 20 elections would be resolved this way is entirely unknown, but what we do know is that they reject the idea of just simply having the highest vote-getter win. The convention decides that the president needs a majority of the electoral votes immediately to win, or a majority of the states and the House of Representatives. No minority rule here. Eventually, the Constitution is ratified with what some dubbed the Electoral College in place, and so ends our historical sketch. And of course, that is the end of the story. The founders are perfect, and all has gone well ever since. <laughs> Kudos to Mark Hamill's Joker there. Joseph's story in 1859 could properly summarize the unforeseen consequences that came with the Electoral College. There probably is no part of the plan of the framers of the Constitution which, practically speaking, has so little realized the expectations of its friends as that which regards to the choice of the president. They undoubtedly intended that the electors should be left free to make the choice according to their own judgment of the relative merits and qualifications of the candidates for this high office, and that they should be under no pledge to any popular favorite, and that they should be guided by no sectional influences. In both respects, the event has disappointed all these expectations. The electors are now almost universally pledged to support a particular candidate before they receive their own appointment, and they do little more than register their previous decrees made by public and private meetings to the citizens of their own state. The president is in no just sense the unbiased choice of the people or of the states. He is commonly the representative of a party and of the union, and the danger, therefore, is that the office may hereafter be filled by those who will gratify the private resentments or prejudices or selfish objects of their particular partisans, rather than by those who will study to fulfill the high destiny contemplated by the Constitution, and be the impartial patrons, supporters, and friends of the great interests of the whole country. Well, what happened? George Washington retired, that's what. For the first two elections, Washington won every electoral vote that one candidate could win. That is to say, every elector voted for Washington. Their second votes were spread among various other candidates. Adams came in second and became vice president. The first two presidential elections went swimmingly well, of course, because everyone knew Washington was the indispensable man and was the unanimous choice of all the electors. In 1796, Adams squeaked by Jefferson. This is where the trouble began. Yep, the Constitution drafted in 1787 and effective in 1788 couldn't make it to 1796 before the presidential election process blew up in the founders' faces. If you're under the mistaken impression, having listened to this podcast that we think the founders were infallible, well, time to rip that band-aid right off. Ouch, that really hurt. We could go on a really long detour, or maybe we can just do a few separate episodes to explain what happened in John Adams' single term in office, but Jefferson came in second place, 
and was very grateful to serve under Adams loyally as vice president. Not. Jefferson went to war against Adams, not with weapons, but with just about everything else. Jefferson created his own political party, hired propagandists, and organized actively to undermine the policies of the president under which he served. This was a mess. The founders had many blind spots, and one of them was that they did not account for the development of partisan political parties dominating the federal government. Can you imagine what they would think of politics today? Well, in any event, what was happening in the Adams administration was inevitable. The losing candidate was the political enemy of the winner, and he was trying his best to ruin the Adams administration. Well, karma has an interesting way of biting back. In the next election, the election of 1800, a funny thing happened on the way to the Electoral College. Jefferson had teamed up with Aaron Burr of New York. He did not want to win the presidency and have Adams come in second and be his vice president. Then he could be on the receiving end of what he did to Adams. Although seriously, it was not in Adams' nature to do that. Nevertheless, Jefferson and Burr worked as a ticket, and they were able to garner a majority of the electoral votes. However, they were just a bit too clever. Each of their electors cast one vote for Jefferson and one vote for Burr. Wait, that means they tied. And when there is a tie, what happens? The election is decided by the House of Representatives between the two tied candidates. But luckily for Thomas Jefferson, Burr deferred to Jefferson and allowed him to take the presidency. Whew, they missed that fiasco. Then when Thomas Jefferson was done with his two tepid and universally popular terms, Burr succeeded him with Jefferson's full support. Oh wait, that alternative universe didn't happen. Burr refused to defer and instead fought tooth and nail to win the presidency for himself in the House of Representatives. But of course, the House of Representatives knew what the skinny was and voted for Jefferson to save themselves and the country's serious trauma. No, that alternative history line didn't happen either. The Federalists were not going to make this easy. In the end, after a torturous period, the House of Representatives eventually did support Jefferson, but only after Alexander Hamilton, who despised Jefferson, supported Jefferson because he thought at least Jefferson had principles, and Burr had none. In the end, Hamilton signed his own death warrant, but that is the subject of a future episode or two, or a Broadway musical. It took 36 ballots in the House of Representatives for Jefferson to win. Delaware, which ironically had one congressman, a Federalist and Adams supporter, Representative James A. Bayard, announced that for the sake of the Union, and probably influenced by Hamilton's announcement, that he was going to vote for Jefferson. Other Federalists from South Carolina, Maryland, and Vermont followed suit by abstaining, and Jefferson won. By the way, the musical completely flubs this whole campaign and the debacle in its wake. In what Jefferson called the Revolution of 1800, he took power. In the end, there was a peaceful transfer of power from one party to another. America had demonstrated to the world an earth-shattering first, the leaders of a major nation turning over power to their enemies in a peaceful election. But in the midst of this awesome lesson, another was also revealed, a terrible flaw of the Electoral College. Thankfully, the leadership of the country moved quickly to fix at least a major part of the problem. No, this time they really did. On December 9, 1803, Congress passed the 12th Amendment. It was ratified barely six months later on June 15, 1804. Here it is. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for president and vice president, one of whom at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state with themselves. They shall name in their ballots the person voted for as president, and in distinct ballots the person voted for as vice president, 
and they shall make distinct list of all persons voted for as president and of all persons voted for as vice president and of the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of the government of the United States directed to the president of the Senate. The president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if no person have such majority, then from the persons having the highest numbers not exceeding three on the list of those voted for as president, the House of Representatives shall choose immediately by ballot the president. But in choosing the president, the vote shall be taken by states. The representation from each state having one vote, a quorum for this purpose shall consist of a member or members from two-thirds of the states, and a majority of all the states shall be necessary to a choice. And if the House of Representatives shall not choose a president whenever the right of choice shall devolve upon them before the fourth day of March next following, then the vice president shall act as president as in case of the death or other constitutional disability of the president. The person having the greatest number of votes as vice president shall be the vice president if such number be a majority, the whole number of electors appointed, and if no person having a majority, then from the two highest numbers on the list, the Senate shall choose the vice president. A quorum for this purpose shall consist of two-thirds of the whole number of the senators, and majority of the whole number shall be necessary to a choice. But no person, constitutionally ineligible to the office of president, shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. That was a pretty long and tedious, but it made some fundamental changes to the Constitution. The electors no longer had two votes for president. They had one vote for president and one vote for vice president. This eliminated the election of 1800 problem by not allowing a tie of people running from the same party. That is, it solved the Jefferson-Burr problem. It also practically eliminated the Adams-Jefferson problem because electors now presumably would vote for a ticket, so the enemy of the president would not be chosen as the vice president. I mean, technically, electors could do that, but practically it has never happened. Like before, if there is no majority, the election of the president is sent to the House of Representatives, but the House of Representatives can only select from the top three vote-getters, not five like the original Constitution. Likewise, if there is no majority for the vice president, that election is referred to the Senate, but only from the top two vote-getters. Joseph Story's observations were not only focused on the resulting difficulties of the original election process. As he and the founders noted, there was an expectation that the electors would be, in essence, free agents, able to cast their votes for whomever they felt was the most worthy person of the position. As John Jay wrote in the Federalist Papers, the powers of the president will be exercised by men the best qualified for the purpose and in the manner most conducive to the public good. The convention appears to have been attentive to both of these points. They have directed the president to be chosen by select bodies of electors to be deputized by the people for that express purpose. But that broke down pretty rapidly. Remember, the Constitution allows the states to choose the method of selection of the electors. For the first election in 1788, five legislatures chose to decide to elect the delegates directly. South Carolina, New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, and Georgia, their legislatures all selected their electors. Pennsylvania provided for a statewide election. Virginia divided up its state into 12 districts, the people of each state electing an elector, while Massachusetts had a very complicated electoral process, also dividing the state into electoral districts. Maryland had a general election, but reserved five slots for the Western Shore and three for the Eastern Shore. New Hampshire provided for an election by majority vote, but if there was no selection, it would default to the legislature, and that's what happened. 
The legislature of New York could not agree on a method, so they forfeited their votes. Rhode Island and North Carolina were laggards. They had not yet adopted the Constitution. For the next election in 1792, there were now 15 states, and nine had the legislatures select the electors. Three had statewide elections, and one divided the state up into electoral districts. Massachusetts still had their complicated electoral district system. North Carolina did something somewhat novel. They divided the state up into four districts and delegated to the legislators who resided in each district to select three electors. In 1800, there were 16 states. Again, nine state legislatures chose their electors, three elected by districts. Massachusetts provided districts, and if no one received a majority, that the legislature would decide. Tennessee, the newest state, used a hybrid system. It divided the state into districts. One district had a popular election, and for the remaining districts, the legislature picked specific people who in turn appointed the electors. After the 12th Amendment passed, the election of 1804 saw the following methods. Virginia was a statewide election. Pennsylvania was supposed to have the entire legislature decide, but since they couldn't agree, the Senate made the decision. Six states had a popular election. Tennessee named people who in turn would appoint its electors. Over time, popular election of electoral votes came into vogue. By 1824, only five states still had legislatures choosing their electors. By 1832, it was down to South Carolina. That pattern held up until Lincoln's election in 1860. Today, all electoral votes are chosen by election by the people. 48 states have a winner-take-all process, that is, whoever wins the statewide election receives all the electoral votes of the state. Maine and Nebraska allocate their electors by congressional district. That is, there is an election in each congressional district, and whoever wins the district receives an elector. Whoever wins the entire state receives two additional electors. That is commensurate with the two electors given to the state in connection with their senators. Over the years, there have been many criticisms of the Electoral College. Most of them center on the fact that the nation as a whole can vote for one presidential candidate. That is what most people call the popular vote but the Electoral College elects another. This first happened in 1824 in the election of Andrew Jackson versus John Quincy Adams. Adams lost the popular vote by 38,000, which is over 10% of the vote. In fact, Adams only won 84 of the 261 electoral votes, about a third, but this was the second election decided by the House of Representatives, and they went with Adams. The popular vote winner lost again in 1876 in the infamous Tilden Hayes election. It was infamous not because of the Electoral College, but because of widespread fraud. Rutherford B. Hayes lost the popular vote by over 250,000 votes, which was about 3% of the vote, and won just slightly more than a majority of electoral votes. Benjamin Harris won election in 1888 while losing the popular vote by 90,000, but he won close to 60% of the electoral votes. He knew how to game that system. This did not happen again for over 100 years. Until Texas Governor George W. Bush beat Vice President Al Gore in 2000, while losing the popular vote by about a half a million votes. That was only 0.5% of the overall vote. And it happened yet again in 2016, with business mogul Donald J. Trump losing the popular vote by about 3 million. He won about 46% of the popular vote. Ex-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton had about 2% more, but Trump ran away with the Electoral College 304 to 227. There have been many calls to reform the Electoral College over the years, including just abolishing it outright in favor of a national popular vote. One significant constitutional amendment has been enacted since the 12th Amendment, and that is the 23rd Amendment, which was ratified on March 29, 1961, which granted electors to the District of Columbia as if it were a state. 
otherwise it left the Electoral College intact. Gaining currency in recent years is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. States in the compact pledged to give all their electoral votes to the winner of the popular election, but they will only do so when states representing an Electoral College majority join the compact. As of the recording of this episode, the proposal has been adopted by 15 states and Washington, D.C. However, Colorado has suspended its participation. But if you count all 15 states, including Colorado and Washington, D.C., they have 196 electoral votes. That is nearly three-quarters of the votes they need for the compact to kick in. Some argue this is perfectly constitutional, and others not. Finally, a recent Supreme Court case, Chalafat v. Washington, decided July 6, 2020, has found that states can compel so-called faithless electors to follow the popular vote in their state or punish them if they refuse. In 2016, a handful of electors refused to vote for Clinton or Trump, even though they were pledged to do so. States found, in accordance with their laws, that they had violated their pledge and removed and replaced some of the electors, and others were fined. The Supreme Court found that because the states had the unfettered discretion to determine how electors are to be chosen, they could implement these rules. All justices agreed on this result quite a feat in this day and age. Seven joined the majority written by Justice Elena Kagan, which found that the operative language in the Constitution allowed the states to impose these restrictions. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a concurring opinion joined by Justice Neil Gorsuch, reasoning that under the Tenth Amendment and the doctrine of enumerated powers, the states had the authority to do whatever they chose to do unless it was banned by the Constitution. In other words, since the Constitution did not expressly ban penalties or replacement of faithless electors, the states had the authority to impose the restrictions. As we have discovered, the Electoral College is a unique American institution designed as the careful compromise of the Constitutional Convention and modified by a subsequent amendment. Yet, I bet you were never taught much of this in school. Such a shame and a slap in the face of our founding generation. We certainly can agree or disagree with the Electoral College, but we should understand its origin and its purpose before we undertake any major changes to this constitutional structure. Some key takeaways from this episode. The mode of selecting the president was the result of a hard-fought and contentious constitutional convention debate. The idea of a popular nationwide election was rejected because, among other things, there were serious concerns that the public would not have sufficient information and the public would be swayed by bias to local candidates, passion, and celebrity. The idea of a congressional election of the president was also rejected because, among other things, of grave concerns about the independence of the president, as well as formations of cabals and corruption. The Electoral College was intended to mediate the passions of the people, as well as the dangers of elections by Congress, by creating an independent body whose sole function was to select the best candidate. How electors are chosen is determined by the legislature of each state. Each state have the number of electors equal to the number of representatives in the House of Representatives and Senators. President and Vice President now run as a slate, and electors cast one vote for each. The person receiving an outright majority of electors becomes President and Vice President, respectively. Otherwise, the House of Representatives chooses the President, selecting from the top three vote-getters. Each state has one vote, chosen by a majority of its representatives. A similar process works for the Vice President, but he or she is chosen by the Senate out of the top two vote-getters. Originally, most electors were chosen directly by the legislatures of their states. Over time, states determined to select their electors by popular election, with 48 of the 50 states choosing a winner-takes-all system. Generally, the presidential candidate who wins the popular vote also wins the Electoral College, but not always. Washington, D.C. now receives electors as if it were a state. The Electoral College is a source of great controversy, with efforts to change it springing up from time to time. Fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Please join us next time for our 
next regular episode when we continue our exploration of the grievances of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the following, quote, He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies that places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within, unquote. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leo Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.